Good evening and welcome. Uh, I'm Pastor Tim Westermeyer, the senior pastor here at St. Philip Deacon. And on behalf of St. Philip Deacon and Mount Olivet Lutheran Church of Plymouth, which jointly present this series, it's my privilege and pleasure to welcome you to the fourth Faith and Life uh, event of this year's season. Uh, one of the questions I always like to ask at the start of these events is how many of you have never been to a Faith and Life event in the past? So we've got a handful. So a special welcome to all of you. We're glad you're here. Um, a little background, this series is now in its 13th year, so I think our speaker tonight, if I'm doing my math right, is our 64th speaker. Does that sound right? We're a five a year, I guess you need to know that bit of data too. Um, and, you know, from the beginning of this series, we have cast a broad net in terms of the kinds of presenters we, we bring. Um, we've had people who are in all kinds of different professions, who um, come from just about every conceivable Christian tradition, and that's been by design. Uh, as I've thought about our speakers, um, I think we've had one other person who's talked about uh, finance or money, but only one in 13 years. So uh, tonight we're delighted to address that topic from a slightly different perspective. Uh, you can read about our speaker's uh, biography in your bulletin, or excuse me, your program, I guess. That's an occupational hazard. Um, <laughs> So I won't read it for you here, but one of the things I always like to ask our presenters before the night begins is, uh, tell me something that is not in your official biography. And so when we were chatting and had a wonderful conversation over coffee uh, this afternoon, what she said is, well, a lot of people are curious whether or not I actually have my own honeybees, and I do. So she raises honeybees. You can ask her about that at the end. But we are delighted she's with us tonight. Will you help me welcome Catherine Collins? Good evening, everyone. I'm so delighted to be with you tonight, and I have to admit I was intrigued from the very moment I heard about this series by three little letters, A-N-D, faith and life. Um, for so many of us in our day-to-day -day lives, there is this sense of either or that has crept into our thinking, and pretty often it's a false choice that we're presented with. So I'm thrilled to have the chance to kind of integrate these ideas of faith and life, especially when it comes to my professional life of investing. When I enter a space like this, I have flashbacks actually to being a very, very young child. My first integration of faith and life really was with my mother. We lived right across the street from St. Ignatius of Loyola, and every day we would go to church when I was a little kid. We'd go on our walk around the block, we'd stop in at church. We did it on Tuesday, we did it on Sunday, every day. And it was through that process, which really are my very earliest memories as a young toddler, that I started to, without really words, understand this idea that when it comes to faith, when it comes to a lot of important issues, there's this outer element. You know, she taught me all my prayers. We went to church on Sunday. I learned all the order of Mass. I prepared for my communion, my confirmation. I grew up Catholic. There are a lot of rules, and I learned them all. So there was a very strong sense of structure and ritual and tradition that was so powerful. But through my mom's example and through those random Tuesdays and Wednesdays stopping into church, I realized there also was this kind of less visible element to faith, that sort of lived element that is a little harder to put on a piece of paper, a little harder to teach someone overtly. 
but you can teach through example over the course of time. And I'm so grateful to my mom for giving me that sense of what's seen and what's unseen when it comes to faith, when it comes to life. Um, some of you know I've been studying biology in recent years after a long hiatus, and one of the organisms that has really captivated me is the lotus flower, sacred flower in many traditions. And in particular, there's some cool things about the lotus seed. In fact, if some of you are botanically inclined, you might know a few years ago there was a team in China that found a lotus seed that was 1,300 years old, dried up in a riverbed, and it sprouted. So this sort of captured a lot of imagination, a lot of botanists got back to work revisiting the research on the lotus. And we've known for many years that the lotus seed has this great, strong external coating. If you step on a lotus seed, it's, it's your foot that's going to hurt, not the lotus seed. And for a long time, we thought that was the secret of this incredible longevity of the seed, the fact that it could remain viable. It had this hard, hard coating around it. And that's part of the story, but it turns out it's only part of the story. More recently, the botanists have discovered that inside that seed, there's this amazing family of enzymes that act as repair mechanisms. So when that outer coat gets chipped or a fungus enters into the seed, it has this whole other source of strength, this whole other source of protection that comes to the fore. So again, this, this sort of outer protection, this visible shell, and also this inner strength. That, in turn, ties to one of my favorite studies from divinity school. We, we studied a lot of root words in divinity school. And one of my favorite lessons talked about the difference between bravery and courage, which I always thought were, you know, pretty much the same thing. And I have to tell you, in an academic setting, sometimes you just want to roll your eyes. Like, really, we're going to talk about these two words for the next three hours? <laughs> I mean, we all know what they mean already, my gosh. But it turns out I had no idea. The root word of bravery is uh, bravure, face. It's, it's like a strong shell. It is literally putting a strong front to the world when you're brave. But the root word for courage is cur, the French word for heart. It is quite literally strength from within. So the source of strength for courage is completely different to and maybe complementary to the source for bravery. Again, the same theme of kind of outer structure coupled with inner strength. And that's kind of how I think about this title and this theme, Faith and Life, for all of us, you know, your professional life, your personal life, your faith basis, that intertwining between the seen and the unseen. So I am an investor, as you heard. I have been a professional investor for over 25 years now, and I love the fact that investing also has this scientific side to it and this art some people say investing is actually the last liberal arts kind of profession. Uh, I hoped that was true. I actually started my career at Fidelity one week after graduating from Wellesley College, classical liberal arts education. And thankfully, uh, my early bosses chose to give me a very small assignment because when I showed up, I wasn't quite sure which one was the balance sheet. Luckily, it said balance sheet at the top, <laughs> so it wasn't that hard to catch on and to start to learn, but they deliberately gave me an assignment that would give me some time to actually learn all of the finance that I needed to learn. And my first assignment was uh, cement and aggregates in 1990. Now, some of you might not be in the heavy construction industry, so I will let you in on a secret. Aggregates are rocks. So I was the gravel analyst <laughs> at Fidelity, a very prestigious job. 
Uh, as it turns out, the gravel analyst was a pretty amazing perch. You'd be stunned to figure out uh, how exciting the rock business can be. Uh, over time, I did have that time, thankfully, to learn the ropes in finance. And thanks to all my colleagues, I really flourished in this environment. I love that investing engages all of your creative capacity, all of your analytical capacity, all of your emotional capacity, sometimes all at once. It was the perfect profession for me, being kind of curious and wanting to be connected to the world and still have sort of a tangible way to act. Over the course of the many years to come, I, I did actually move on from being the gravel analyst, thankfully. I managed a lot of different funds at Fidelity, my first starting when I was only 22. Uh, some of the largest were four or five billion dollars in assets. I spent some time in our philanthropic uh, part of the company as a grant maker, and I came back in the early 2000s to run the research department, which is one of the biggest in our field. And throughout all that time, I loved this interplay between what was happening on the screen on my desk and what was happening kind of out there in the world. And as I started managing teams of bigger people, there was this added human dimension that I must say was much more challenging than the stock market. I do think that we are all investors, and this is a pretty important point, whether it's your profession or not. We invest all day, every day. We invest our time, we invest our energy, we invest as citizens, as family members, as business people, as human beings. And so what I'll talk about from a professional context, I think really easily translates into all of our different personal contexts. I mentioned the change in my role over the course of the first 20 years or so of my career, but I want to give you a little more granular sense for how the investment profession evolved during this same period. So 1990. I come into the office, first thing in the morning, I sit down at my desk, which is bare, <laughs> and my boss's boss's boss had a great habit of coming around to the junior analyst like me, and almost every morning he would say, Catherine, tell me, what have you learned today that is going to help our shareholders? Now, this might sound like an idle comment that you make to a junior analyst whose name you may or may not know, <laughs> or it might sound like a really big, demanding question from someone who was very senior in our company. In retrospect, I think this is the most important mission-centric kind of question that my boss's boss's boss could have possibly asked. What have you learned today out there in the world that is going to be of service to these people who have trusted us with their financial well-being. To have that asked out loud every morning was the best possible way to center all of our activity for the day. Now, if you fast forward that to 2005 as a big fancy portfolio manager and not the gravel analyst by then, uh, every week or two, we would sit down with my boss's boss's boss, and it was a much more formal process by now. We had uh, layers and layers of fancy reports. We would all go around the table and explain various statistics. The questions were very challenging, appropriately so. And so in many ways, this was a huge advance. My boss's boss's boss at that point knew exactly what I was doing on any given day with the portfolios that had been entrusted to me. But all of that data, all of that discussion takes up a lot of time and a lot of energy. And so by 2005, it was very rare for someone to ask such a simple, open-ended question like, hey, what did you learn today? 
that is going to be of help to our shareholders. The question was still there, but it had gone from being seen, from being very visible and tangible, to being kind of unseen and unspoken. So that's how management evolved over that time period. Let me talk a little bit about data. Back in 1990, many of you might remember, you would run to the newspaper, the actual paper newspaper. <laughs> and if you were in the financial world, you would frantically scan through the C-section of the Wall Street Journal, the one with the tiny, tiny little print that I can no longer read. And you would try to go through and see if there was any press release that you missed, any company that reported earnings that you hadn't yet heard about. And at that point, you were still ahead of the game. If the market hadn't opened yet and you had just read the paper, you were on top of things. You, were, you had a big competitive advantage. I would stand by the fax machines in those early years, praying that they did not run out of paper before the press release finally came through, all curled up. You fast forward to 2005 again, this data had completely changed. Uh, data that cost tens of thousands of dollars in 1990 is now free. In fact, on my phone over there, I've got 10 apps that will show me way more than I ever could have seen as a senior portfolio manager at Fidelity 10 years ago. Real time, every market, every security, every piece of news for free. This is obviously a much more efficient world that we're living in and clearly this ubiquity of data has brought some big advantages. But the same trend persisted as we saw on the management side. With all of that data, it's actually become very hard to find time to think. I was the analyst for General Electric in the mid-1990s, and the press release when GE reported a quarter used to be revenue, earnings per share, Quote from Jack Welch, we grew 10%, no, 15, never 10. 15% uh, again, you know, go GE. Awesome. As an analyst, your job was then to pick up the phone and ask questions if you actually had questions about how the company was doing. If you are interested in the stock market today and you want to follow a company like General Electric, it's easy to do, and again, it's free. This is awesome. Something I never dreamed was possible. I can get the same information at home. Uh, that I got in a professional setting years ago. But now, if you want to sort through all that data, the press release is 30 pages, the 10Q is filed at the exact same time, that's about 45 or 50 pages, the analyst presentation, which is also released at the same time, is another 30 pages, and then there's a two and a half hour public conference call. That's a lot of data. And just sifting through it, that busyness of all of our day-to-day -day lives has started to usurp the time for questions. One more evolution I wanted to talk about, and that is on the client side. When I first was a very young portfolio manager, my exposure to clients was constant, and it was very personal. Actual human beings who were invested in my fund would come up to me in unlikely settings, like at the gym or coming out of the ladies' room, and would say, hey, you, I trust you. I've, I've trusted you with my money. Tell me what you're doing. You know, what have you, same question as my boss used to have, what have you found lately that is going to benefit me? What are you doing on my behalf? There is nothing better to focus your attention than a real life human being in front of you saying, hey, I trust you. Are, should I? <laughs> are you working on my behalf? If I fast forward to the mid-2000s, I still had a lot of client interaction, but the nature of it had really changed. Pretty often, instead of meeting with an actual human being, I would be meeting with a consultant or an advisor, or an advisor to an advisor, or a consultant to a consultant, you know, two or three or four layers away, 
from the end person whose trust we actually were trying to earn. This is not a bad thing. We have created a very complicated investing and financial system, and so these layers actually can add an awful lot of value. But they do also add distance. And they come with a lot of specialization. So when I would sit down with consultants, about 100% of our time was spent on questions like, hey, tell me uh, why your tracking error went up a little bit last quarter. Or I'm looking at your active bet number, and I'm a little bit surprised that it's not higher. Tell me about that. These are good questions. They're important questions. But they're almost all backwards looking. And they're all about the portfolio. They're not at all about the world out there that we're trying to actually analyze and figure out on behalf of people who trust us. None of these evolutions were bad things, but all of them, again, take up a lot of room. And so this question of and became harder and harder to hold. It really does, at some point, start to feel like either or. Either I can spend the next four hours figuring out how General Electric is doing, or I can step back and try to think a more creative thought. There really are only so many hours in the day. And sure enough, towards the end of this period, I had my own little mini financial crisis a few years before our big, gigantic financial crisis. My portfolios hit a rough patch, as every portfolio does at some point. But I found myself relying on all of those layers and all of those tools that we had improved so much over the prior 20 years. I was staying later and later at my desk every night, building bigger and bigger spreadsheets, diving deeper and deeper into the crevices of my own brain, and it was not helping. Luckily, at this point, it was my first introduction to the honey bee, our main theme to discuss tonight. I met Dr. Tom Seeley during this period, who's a honeybee researcher at Cornell. And Dr. Seeley is especially focused on how bees make collective decisions. So in particular, he studies how bees decide where to go when they're swarming to a new hive location. What are the communication mechanisms? How does all of the decision-making and voting work within the hive? And most importantly, how is it that when they're faced with a choice, they actually make the single best choice about 90% of the time? So Dr. Seeley's talking about honeybees, and when he said single best choice 90% of the time for any investor, that kind of piques your interest. <laughs> you know, any investor would kill for a number like that in terms of success rate. And the one thing I took from that first meeting with Dr. Seeley was, oh, the first step when the bees have a big, big decision to make is they send the scouts out. They leave the hive and explore the environment around them. It was exactly the opposite of what I was doing at my desk, staring at my screen, going deeper and deeper and deeper into my spreadsheet. And don't get me wrong, I love spreadsheets, but in the history of the world, there has not been a true spark of creativity or genius that has come through an Excel cell. So I decided to follow, follow Dr. Seeley's advice. I, I got out of my office. I reconnected with my colleagues. I went back out and started seeing a lot more companies. I left the spreadsheets and the risk reports behind and tried to figure out what was actually happening in the world. And sure enough, pretty soon, my funds righted themselves, and uh, the ship was back on course. My shareholders were happy. I was happy. But this sort of seed had been planted, this seed that maybe the time had come to re-expand my universe after many, many years of becoming much more deeply specialized. That quote from Rilke comes to mind. He has that great poem, I live my life in widening circles. And at this stage, I was living my life in a narrowing circle. 
there's, there's a time for that. There's a time to go deep and really specialize. And then there's a time to broaden back out. And, and my time for broadening back out had come. So I left. I left my hive. I flew from Fidelity at the end of 2007. And soon after that, I entered divinity school. And again, this theme of either or came up. My goal in going to divinity school was to recenter on that sense of sort of calm and true faith that my mom had instilled in me so many years ago. I wanted to unite that more clearly with my own professional endeavors. So it was very much an and exploration that I was hoping to go through at Divinity School. But a, a funny thing happened when I told my financial friends I was off to Harvard. They said, hey, that is so great. We are so glad you found your calling. Which sounds really nice, but what it actually means is goodbye. You're leaving us, clearly, going to that land far, far away. And when I got to that land far, far away, you know, 2.3 miles, in fact, um, the reception was very interesting. My friends at Divinity School all kept saying things like, oh, Catherine, we're so glad you're here. Welcome. It's so good you've seen the light. Which, again, is kind of friendly and kind of mean. You know, for someone to have seen the light, they must have been lost in the darkness for quite some time. <laughs> so both of these groups were prepared to be fully supportive of me, which I deeply appreciated, but both of them also really were much more comfortable if I left these worlds separate. It was great that the other existed as long as it was a little bit over there. And in fact, if you go to Harvard, the business school is on one side of the river, and if you cross the river and walk and walk and walk as far as you can walk without going off campus, that's where the divinity school is. <laughs> I don't think this is by accident. We had a long time to plan this. And this is true, I think, again, in many of our settings. What is literally happens to be true in Cambridge, I think, is metaphorically true for many of us. It's so much more comfortable if I like this over here, and I like this over there, but I keep them kind of neatly separated, it gets a little messy when they get too close. And in fact, the first things I studied at Divinity School, aside from those root words, um, was the writing of Rudolf Otto. And many of you will know he talks about this numinous element of faith. He calls it mysterium tremendum fascinans, the mystery of faith that is terrifying and fascinating. And boy, isn't it, right? What could be better than this terrifying, fascinating world that we're trying to navigate? It was exactly the way I felt about investing all those years. This is fascinating and a little bit scary. Again, this element of what is seen and unseen, things you can analyze and things that are beyond. The longer I studied at Divinity School, the more I realized there was a really strong theme that was running through all of my classes, whether it was theology or religion or philosophy, and that theme was fear. And in retrospect, it's, it's not that surprising. What is it that we're all trying to do? Where is it that our faith plays such a, a crucial, crucial role? It's in navigating this crazy world that we actually don't control at the end of the day. So it's no surprise that fear ran through my studies there. And when I had some more time to reflect, I realized, oh, that's actually all I ever was doing as an investor also. Some folks who are very cynical will say investing is all about greed. But I think, A, that is inaccurate. And B, 
I do believe greed is, is really just a specialized form of fear. And everyone knows when you're fearful, you make terrible decisions. The worst investors in the world are the ones who are scared. So what was it all those years at Fidelity but that same process, trying to navigate this fascinating, terrifying world, just in a slightly more specific context? So I was thrilled at how my studies were evolving and how they seemed to relate so directly to my investment world. But I have to tell you, if you go to a cocktail party and you say, let me tell you, I am so excited. I am studying money and morals and ethics and fear. Tell me about your money and morals and ethics and fear. <laughs> it is not a real conversation starter, surprisingly enough. And so it occurred to me that these silos really were pretty far apart for a lot of us. And I, I, I needed some sort of bridge, both for myself and for the folks I was trying to work with, something that would help us get from here to there that was not so full of that, of that anxiety, of that fear. And it's at this point that the honeybee kind of returned. I began to study biomimicry. And biomimicry is a crazy word, but it has a pretty simple premise at the heart of it. It's the idea that the natural world is full of wisdom, and we hardly ever look there. We look to the natural world more as a storehouse, a place to take stuff from as opposed to looking at it as a library, a place to really learn. And especially if you're looking for systems that are resilient and regenerative, what better model do we have than the natural world? So the study of biomimicry is very complex and really fascinating, uh, so much so that I wrote a whole book about how I think biomimicry relates to investing. But I want to give you a taste not of that highly intellectual, kind of analytically rigorous side. I want to give you a taste first of the human side of looking to nature for wisdom. So I hope you will indulge me for just a second. Take, take one deep breath. It won't be long, I promise. One deep breath. Close your eyes. And picture your favorite place. Once you have it clear in your mind, picture what you're hearing what you're seeing in front of you. Think about how you feel there in your favorite place. Okay, take one more breath. Open your eyes and tell me, how, how did you feel just in that 10 imaginary seconds in your favorite place? Peaceful? Calm? What was that? Relaxing. So these words to me, they're the opposite of anxiety and fear. If I say to someone, tell me about your favorite place, it is completely the opposite of saying to someone, tell me about your money and fear. It's a really good bridge. And for how many of you, just a quick check, how many of you um, was your favorite place outdoors? Okay. Uh, 80, 90% probably, okay. It, it usually is 80 or 90% if I ask in a group. And just a quick side note for a frame of reference, in the United States, we spend 90% of our time indoors. So, food for thought. Uh, so I realized in my early explorations, kind of connecting my, my interest in spirit and my interest in, in the natural world, that there was this kind of deeply human sense of, of homecoming when we look to the natural world as, as a place to, to explore. And that's what set me on this biomimicry path. So I thought I would tell you the practical side. We'll take just one little organism and apply it to some of those quick 
uh, observations I had about the investment world and what some of the challenges I was facing were. So we're gonna use the honeybee, my favorite organism by far, and I'll talk about just three of the things that had evolved over that long stretch of my time as a professional investor and what the bees have shown me when I look to them as a guide instead of looking only at my spreadsheets. The first challenge is the challenge of signaling. You know, all of us get input all day, every day. And as an investor, my early signal, as I mentioned, used to be this demanding question, what have you learned? Over the years, the loudest signal, the most persistent signal by far, was a signal about price and performance. And in fact, a very, very short-term, near uh, millisecond version of this signal. Any portfolio manager today, in fact, many of you at home, if you open up your brokerage account, you can do it too. You'll see a big heat map that shows you all the stocks that are going up and down in the, in the market. And then you'll see another version that shows your own personal performance. And if you're in a professional setting, usually there's a big number in the corner that's flashing. If it's green, it's a good day. If it's red, it's not such a good day. And it's flashing every minute, every day, every week, every month, every year. I have to tell you, no matter how independent-minded you think you are, when there's a signal flashing at you all day, every day, every week, <laughs> every month, it starts to have an effect. You start to react to that signal. You start to internalize its effects. And whether you want it to or not, it becomes a pretty primary motivator. So I asked myself, let's look at Dr. Seeley's work with these honeybees. What is it that they use as a signal when they're trying to make decisions? Again, the first thing they do is they send out the scouts. And those scouts go out and they come back and they share the data with no interpretation whatsoever in front of the whole hive. So if one scout has explored an area that might be a good hive location, but she hasn't had time to fully test it out and measure it, that's what her little dance tells them when she comes back to the hive. If another scout has gone out and found the perfect nesting site and actually had the time to scope out how big it is and how it's oriented towards the sun and has all that information, she comes back, she dances louder and longer than the first one because she has better and more information. And this is without spin, it's without processing. There's no PowerPoint presentation, there's no BNBC that's interpreting the real-time hive data that's coming back. It is just the true raw data that is debated. And they do this over and over again. So again, my first wisdom from the bees was to go out and do that scouting, even if it's incomplete the first time. When the scouts go out, usually in a, in a standard hive, there's 100 or 200 scouts that go out, maybe 5 or 10 actually have any real data to discuss when they come back. It is not a high hit rate. So going out and exploring, even when it's not immediately beneficial, was my lesson number one when it comes to signaling. In short, leave the screen. Leave the screen even when it's really mesmerizing and compelling to stand there in front of it. The second tension I was really feeling was a tension between efficiency and effectiveness. As we discussed, we've seen this huge deluge of data, and I should mention this is not at all specific to finance. When I look at my friends in the medical profession, they seem to spend a lot of time with insurance companies and not as much time with patients as they would want. All of that data, all of those processes we've created that should be helpful, that actually hold the system together, but pull us a little bit away from that primary purpose. We have parallels to this in lots of other professions and lots of other settings in life. So this efficient, effective question was a big one for me. 
And again, I looked at the bees. What is it that happens when they come back then and start sharing that information? Dr. Seeley's work has shown that this is an iterative and shockingly patient process. So if they don't have complete information, they send all the scouts out again, and then they come back and share it. If the bees are trying to decide where to swarm to, it can take 18 or 20 hours. And it is not 20 hours of sitting around. It is 20 hours of active public debate in the hive. If you've ever been lucky enough to see a swarm that's actually outside of the hive, and, and you're very, very patient, you can sit there and watch this public debating process. They don't rush the part where they have incomplete information. They keep going. This has um, led to a little reframing of my own investing activity. I learned uh, when I left Fidelity that uh, sometimes you fall into things that you never intended to. So when I looked at my portfolio, I had more invested in Southeast Asian emerging market bonds than I had invested in my hometown. This was not really by design. It just kind of happened, which is a terrible thing to say as a responsible fiduciary. Uh, but I realized I wanted to invest more in my hometown. The problem was I can't do that easily with the click of a mouse. I have to leave my house. I have to talk to actual people who live in my hometown. I have to figure out what's happening there where I might somehow be of service. I have to really build those personal relationships. Sometimes I have to sign pieces of actual paper and not just click on my computer screen in order to make that investment. It is much less efficient. It is also much more effective. Those investments not only are great investments in and of themselves by traditional financial measures, but they have cemented me with my community. They have introduced me to new friends. I can look outside the window and actually see the results of some of those investments. So that's lesson number two from the bees. The third one is the toughest one, and it does require a little explanation. I call this the zero-sum problem. All of those fancy risk reports that I talked about that can indeed be very helpful. And most of our portfolio management tools these days in finance are based on neoclassical economics. Do not worry, I'm not going to give you my lecture on the shortcomings of modern portfolio theory. But this one element is really important to understand. All of our tools in any profession, in any setting that we choose, have some sort of embedded assumptions in them. And again, there's a scene element, which is usually the report that comes out of using those tools. There's the unseen element, which is the assumption that underlies it all. And if you don't take that out every once in a while and dust it off and really examine it, before too long you're going to forget what that tool was actually designed to do in the first place. And you're going to start using it in a way that is maybe not its intended purpose. So here's the challenge with most of our analytics in the financial world. They're based on neoclassical economics, and the underpinning of neoclassical economics is a little asterisk in the corner of almost every theory, and it says ceteris paribus, all else equal. This is really important and handy analytically. It basically means the math is easier. You can get all of your equations to foot if you make this one really crucial assumption. And in fact, it's not a bad assumption. If you want to take a snapshot at a moment in time and use this analysis to tell you what's happening at that moment in time, it's, it's really pretty accurate and pretty useful. The trouble is, for investing, you hardly ever want to look at the snapshot at a moment in time. You don't want a still picture. You want the movie. You want to know what has happened before. And more importantly, you want to know what's going to happen in the future. You want that full iterative picture. So ceteris paribus is, is not such a bad assumption, except for the fact that all else is not 
equal. We live in this dynamic, adaptive, really messy world where the equations don't always foot, and they sometimes take really strange curly cues and have implications that you never would have imagined. Nobody likes to think about that. It's that same kind of specter of fear that comes back. And so we push it aside and we set it in a box and we say, no, 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 ceteris paribus, here's your risk report. This is how much you actually might win or lose on any given day. And we forget about the footnote that tells us how specific and limited that set of calculations is. Now, I know this sounds like a really wonky rant to most folks, but let me tell you the human dimension of this assumption. The implication of a zero-sum world is that for me to win, you have to lose. If one thing goes up, another thing has to go down. It has to balance out. And so if you have this as the underpinning of all of your analytics, the natural conclusion is to lock you in this endless cycle of competition. It's like the game Survivor. You know, I might collaborate with you, but only if it's to beat that guy over there, and then in the end, we have to turn on each other anyway. It makes for good reality TV, but thank goodness we do not live in a reality TV show. We live in reality, reality. <laughs> Again, reality is a little bit messier, but oh my gosh, it's so much better. In reality, where Ceteris is not Paribus, we actually have the chance to engage in generative activity. We actually have the chance to create new things that make the pie bigger or change the pie or create an entire second pie where one didn't exist before. The bees in this regard are the best possible natural example I can think of. I mean, they go around collecting dust from flowers and before you know it, you have honey and beeswax. I mean, woohoo! That is not a ceteris paribus world. That is a generative world. This gets to one of my biggest ethical and moral questions with investing. Again, with our tools rooted in this zero-sum mindset, it is very hard in some instances to make an analytical argument for cooperative, I win, you win sort of behavior. It is hard to argue that the individual and the collective can actually be aligned instead of opposed. But again, the bees are a great example here. Emerson has a great saying, there can be no good for the bee, which is not good for the hive. The individual bee cannot thrive without a hive. In fact, it cannot live without the hive for even a single day. So there's not always this trade-off between the individual and collective, and there's no better set of examples for that than the natural world. What I've done with this idea is I have changed the structure of my own company. Uh, my company is called Honeybee Capital. It's a research company. And most research companies, especially in finance, are based on the highest possible level of proprietariness. The more walls you have between your research and access, uh, the better it tends to be. You know, people price it higher. It's supposed to be more valuable the more secret it is. And I decided to just try and see what happens if it's not secret. What happens if all of our research is just on an open platform, anyone can access it anytime? What happens if I trust the people who use my research? What if I say to them, if you use this and it's of value to you, I trust that you will find a way to reflect that? This is not supposed to work. It's especially not supposed to work on Wall Street. Trust-based business on Wall Street, people tend to smile and, I swear to God, pat me on the head, which infuriates me like nothing else. Oh, that's so sweet. Oh, so it's a nonprofit. No, it is a highly profitable business that is based on trust. Take that. <laughs> the fact is, it works. Relationships, reciprocity, cooperation, even on Wall Street, 
actually works really well. This business is much more profitable with this open trust-based platform than it ever would be if I had a secret, secret, secret society of subscribers that I convinced to pay me every quarter. It's pretty cool. So most importantly, this challenges not only the theory that underpins a big part of, of finance, but the human implication that comes along with it. Because the truth is, this I win, you lose assumption is almost completely false. In fact, I only win if you win too. It is completely the opposite of what's baked into our theory, and yet it is the lived experience of so many of us in so many settings. For me to win, you have to win also. If you're a tree and you are growing in crummy soil, you are going to die. If you are a shark and you are swimming in a tainted ocean, you are going to die too. You cannot thrive if the system around you is not healthy as well. So I started with the lotus. I, I want to end with the lotus as well. Uh, the lotus flower, many of you will know, is a sacred flower in so many traditions. And there's good reason for this. A lot of poets have written about the beautiful, graceful form of the lotus, the fact that it's this pristine, pure white flower that's rising up out of the mud. It lends itself to such amazing, wonderful imagery. And that outer, visible element of the lotus really is stunning. But again, there's something else within. There's something else that's unseen. The lotus flower is actually hot. And I don't mean that in a metaphorical way. It's, it's literally hot. Inside of a lotus flower, it's between 80 and 90 degrees, the same temperature as a beehive, even when it's 50 or 60 degrees in the air around it. The lotus generates its own heat in order to attract the beetles and the bees that actually protect it in return and propagate its life. So I like to think about this when I have my own investing in mind. You know, for all of us, there's that outer shell. There's that visible part of our investing. You can get a report any day from any service that will tell you the financial return of your investments, and that is indeed really important. But for every investment we make, there also is this element that is a little less seen, a little harder to quantify, but just as powerful. It's like that heat, that energy rippling out from the lotus. And I try to test now against all of those outer, more quantifiable measures. What is it that I can see that I'm putting out into the world with my investments that maybe is unseen, but just as important? Just like my mom taught me, okay, here are the words of the prayer, but here's what prayer actually looks like in practice. What is it that I am generating with my investing beyond that visible form? Is it something that I want to see happen in the world? Is it helping to shape a world that I actually want to live in, a world where I can win because the world around me is winning too? So this is my question as I move into the future of my investment career, and I hope it has planted some seeds with you too. As you think about your own investing, I really hope you have this sense of the awesome science of it, but also a little bit of art. I hope you have a sense of this visible element, but also these unseen elements. I hope you have some sense of bravery and also courage, that strength from within. I'm wishing you faith. I'm wishing you life. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine, very much. Um, her book, by the way, is available. Uh, and Matt from Subtext Books is selling them. Uh, Subtext is the state's oldest independent bookseller. Is that correct, Matt? 
It's kind of, he's doing this to me right now. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know what that means. Yes, All right. let's say yes. It, it sounds good, but they've been great partners, so uh, go see them if you'd like. And uh, Catherine also brought this cool little, I don't know, what do you call this? Not sure either, but okay. it's cool. Take one. But you can have this for free as long as they last. Um, let me say a few words while she rests her voice and be thinking of questions. We have a couple of mics up front here, and she's going to take questions in a moment. First, let me just... Uh, mention our next event uh, with Dr. Caroline Leaf. Uh, as you'll say, see in your program, that's on Thursday, April 21st. That's the last event in this year's series. Uh, she's from South Africa and is an expert on the brain and neuroscience. She has a lot of followers. Um, I, we're hearing from them all the time, so please join us for that again, Thursday, April 21st, uh, 7 o'clock here in the sanctuary. Um, I will also let you know, if you're not on our mailing list, you can leave this form with your email or go to Facebook and sign up uh, or to like us on Facebook, uh, and we're happy to send you emails about upcoming events and remind you about them. We are also hard at work on next year's series, I will tell you that. Uh, we're making great progress on it, but there's still a couple of, couple of openings, so if you have good ideas about speakers you'd like to have come through, uh, please uh, Give me those names on this form as well, which brings me to a special word of thanks tonight. People often ask, so Tim, how do you find these speakers? And they, they come in all kinds of ways, some through my own reading, but many of our speakers have come from recommendations, and Jay Novak, who is sitting in the front row here, wrote me last year and said, you know, there's this woman I've just heard about, thanks to his friend, Dan Aronson, who I've not met, but Dan, good to have you with us, and I believe you had Catherine speak at your shop last year, is that correct? Yeah, so that's a great example of, I don't know, something you said. Ecosystem. Ecosystem is that. <laughs> so Dan, thanks for inviting her. Jay, thank you for passing her name along. Would you give them a word of thanks uh, for making this possible? And then I just, I do want to, I always have to say thank you for the, the individuals and organizations that make these events possible. In its 13 years, this series has never uh, been part of this congregation's budget. It is funded entirely through the generosity of individuals and organizations. You see them listed here, although we discovered we had a printing error. This makes me sick, but we've got a few incorrect names or we're missing some names. We will be sure to correct that next time. Uh, but let me at least uh, list or name the corporate sponsors, Cressa, we're grateful to them, as always, Thrivent Financial, Community Crossroads, Sparky Abrasives has been with us from the very beginning of the series, 13 years ago, Rapid Packaging, Mastercraft, Labels, Productivity Inc., uh, Fuzzy Duck, uh, McLaurin CSF, and Luther Seminary, and then all of the individuals, minus the ones we missed, again, from the printing era. Um, you would not be able to come to events like this featuring wonderful, thoughtful speakers, uh, as you heard tonight, without the support of these people. Would you give them a hand? Okay, and now we're going to take a few questions, um, so please don't be shy. There's a mic there and a mic there. I'll ask Catherine to come up? back up and okay. field them if uh, we have any. And I wrote at least one person today, Amanda, <laughs> to say, to get it started. A few things and came back and your fund's performance went up. I'm curious mm -hmm. what changes you made from what you saw. Oh, yeah. So um, 
So the question is, uh, what did I find in 2005 when I started trying to look outside the screens and away from my spreadsheet? Uh, this was a fantastic lesson, and actually it stood me in good stead through the real financial crisis, which was to follow. Uh, one of my mentors, when I went to him, not with my risk report in hand, but with this open-ended question, I don't know why things aren't coming together like they always have before, he asked me in return a really great question, which is maybe you need to question your notion of safety. What it is that you think is providing stability and some cushion against things that are uncertain. Maybe that has changed uh, and your assumptions there might need to be revisited. It was such a fantastic question and sure enough, some of the individual holdings and companies that I had looked to that had historically been sort of bastions of stability it was pretty evident that there were some cracks in those foundations, and yet, without having that explicit question, I didn't have the objectivity to really reassess that uh, with, with sort of clear, fresh eyes. So it was a huge help, and, and again, it, it proved to be helpful over and over in the next few years. You can ask me about bees, too. I didn't mention with the efficiency effectiveness. Uh, I learned a lot from actual bees and not bee research there. If you try to be efficient with bees, you will be sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Could you comment on the dynamic that existed between you and your colleagues in your time at Harvard? Uh, Thank you. It's a great question. Uh, the question is the dynamic between me and my colleagues at Harvard. Uh, there were a couple elements there that surprised me. Uh, one was a basic math error on my part. They sent us the demographics of the class beforehand, and they sent us the average age, which was right about my age at the time, like 40-ish. And I thought, okay, good, you know, I'm average. I showed up and I realized it was not the median. There were a whole bunch of 22-year-olds and a couple 80-year-olds <laughs> And then me, I was the only one that actually was at the average. So the mix of people was a little different uh, in terms of just life experience than I might have guessed. Um, I was there, as it turned out, in the worst of the financial crisis, starting in 2009 and really kind of playing out the aftermath of all that happened in 2007, 2008. Um, the hardest part for me was, the, the best part was to be repotted in an environment where nobody really cared what was happening in the financial markets on any given day. They did not wake up scanning the Wall Street Journal. They could not care less what I had done with the prior 20 years of my life, which is a very healthy thing. Uh, the flip side of that, which was challenging for me personally, is that it was a very easy time, and frankly it still is, to make blanket statements about those bankers or this terrible system of capitalism in a way that you could never, ever say about a group of people or another faith. You know, so I finally asked some of my classmates, look, substitute any other group for bankers in the sentence you just said, you would be appalled. You know, let's try to have some sense of humanity. And the, the thing that actually finally broke through on that, at least for, for me and my friends, um, was... Obviously, my close friends were going through a crisis of their own, and I know nobody has sympathy for bankers, but so many of my friends had been superstars for the last 20, 30, sometimes 40 years in their chosen profession. And in many, many cases, they had seen the very foundation of what they believed 
both in terms of believing how the world works, but also believing what they personally were gifted at, that foundation was completely destroyed. And to ever see a person going through that kind of period where their foundation, whatever it is, is crumbling, is a horrible, horrible thing. And so finally on that more individual, more human level, we found sort of a shared ministry, if you will, and moved forward. Hi. Hi. I have two questions. One is, I understand you have your own bees, and so do you have honey? And what do you do with your honey? I do. That's a good question. Um, And my second question, you talk about the difference of bravery and courage, and I understand your company is a research company, but do you work with, like, individual investors, and, and, and... do you use those <coughs> two terms in, in trying to help people? And, and how does that play out? Great questions. Uh, so the first question is a bee question. Um, I do keep bees. Luckily, I keep bees in conjunction with a guy who actually knows what he's doing. So thank you, Russ, wherever you may be. Uh, I'm sort of an apprentice beekeeper to Russ at this point and learning from him. Um, we have honey, which is awesome. The th- hives are thriving, which is almost miraculous through New England winters. Um, we also have bears. So this past year has been a real challenge on that front, and uh, it is a real test of my love of nature, frankly. You know, to what lengths will you go to protect your bees against the bears? You know, part of me says, ah, oh, circle of life, and part of me says, no, my bees. Um, so we have an electric fence. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> uh, the honey is great. I actually make, I, um, you, uh, might be my next business, um, I make jam with, with honey, which is unusual and very good. And uh, luckily, honey makes great gifts because no matter how much you love honey, if you have even one hive, like, you, you got enough honey, <laughs> which is pretty wonderful. Um, and then the question was my research business and how that operates. Um, Again, the research is open to everyone. Um, my research is unusual at this point in that it's, it's not what I used to do. I don't recommend specific stocks. I don't pontificate on what I think GDP growth is going to be. I don't try to forecast interest rates. It's all very long-term thematic research. I'm trying to be a little bit of a counterbalance to that ever-present sort of data, data signal. Um, and in fact, most of the people who are professional investors who read it and appreciate it that's what they like, is that it's, it's a counterbalance where it's relevant to their work day to day, but it's not the same thing that they're reading everywhere else. Um, I do not counsel individual people on their investing, although some folks here do, so <laughs> feel free to talk coffee afterwards. Um, but I do talk a lot about these research ideas with people, and I have to admit, um, working so long as a professional investor and loving it so much, uh, I have completely underestimated how emotional money is for most people. And so when I think about, okay, why did you go to divinity school, there's a number of elements of ministry in what I'm trying to do now. And part of that ministry, I hope, is that at least through my written work, I can give people some other way, some other on-ramp to thinking about money that is not so fraught with, with fear. Can you yes. talk a little bit more about investing locally? Um, you mentioned you made that change. How it changed your portfolio, how you looked at performance, did it help you transition to 
uh, away from zero-sum kind of thought process? Yeah, absolutely. The questions around investing locally and, and what I've really done there. Um, it's taken a few different forms for me. Uh, one form is that I've become engaged with our local slow money group, which focuses on funding uh, local food sheds and agricultural systems. Um, another is that I've become engaged in the local entrepreneurial community and especially supporting women entrepreneurs. And so doing a lot more early stage, frankly, very high risk uh, investing uh, as opposed to just public markets and securities. Um, as I mentioned, it's much more labor intensive, which is still a little bit of a challenge for me. And, and I really, I think for everyone, one challenge with investing in a more thoughtful way is it, it takes more investment of your time as well. And that's something that is a little bit tough to manage. Uh, but I have loved how it has not only done well in financial terms, but it's, it's added this human layer of return that is important to me and, and just as tangible from my point of view. I can't really put it on a spreadsheet, but it's pretty, it's pretty easy to see. The last element of local investing that I really appreciate is that it almost automatically is longer term in nature. And so if you're going to commit to an entrepreneur who's starting a business, if you're going to commit to a farmer who's trying to regenerate a farm after years of neglect, that's inherently a much longer term process. And I like that Again, it provides that sort of counterbalance to what is often a very quick turn sort of investment approach in other parts of, of our portfolios. Hi, Catherine. You used a Latin term. I forgot what it was. Could you state that again for me? It was in your studies in divinity school. It was luminae something. Oh, oh, oh. Uh, mysterium tremendum fascinans. I, I wrote it down. I'll write it down for you, too, okay. I guess. Uh, to much to my mom's dismay, I learned all the prayers, but I don't actually excel at Latin. So <laughs> we'll share notes afterwards. Well, let's go back to the 08 situation. And uh, I'd like to know what your feelings are as to uh, the likelihood of, uh, and there's a lot of rumbling going on right now about uh, we didn't really change much. Yeah. How, how do you feel about that whole thing? Yeah, in some ways, everything changed, and in many ways, nothing at all has changed uh, since 08. I think um, the challenge for most of us being human is that we always look in the place of the last problem when we're trying to figure out the next problem, and that is almost always the wrong place to be looking. Um, so the big question I'm trying to look at now is what are, what are the, not the technical factors, but the true sort of structural factors that led to 08 and where can I see those other factors now? Um, in an example of biomimicry, I actually did a study last year that looked at the Dust Bowl and the factors that led to the Dust Bowl and compared them to the factors that led to the 08 crisis and they actually were very, very similar. So volume growth, technological change, and then external shock. And so right now I'm looking for places where we've seen volume growth that is outsized in nature where you're seeing some sort of technological change that is adding leverage and risk to that system and where you might be vulnerable to an external shock. And, and there's actually, I'm sorry to say, a long list of places where that might be the case. Uh, the comfort to me is I've been trying to steer my own investing much more towards, again, longer-term endeavors, tangible endeavors, and things that are less exposed to um, the fictional elements of finance, the things that are kind of synthetic in nature and um, 
they might indeed go down along with everything else, but at least there's something tangible there to see them through. In, in 08, I remember there was a great conference call with Leggett and Platt, one of my favorite companies. I also was the furniture analyst for a long time. And Leggett and Platt makes the springs that go into your mattress. They make the lever that pulls your recliner back. That's Leggett and Platt. Really cool business. Uh, and uh, the CEO, to his great, great credit, one reason he's one of my favorite people in the world, got on the conference call and he said, I just want to remind everyone, we make real products for real customers for real cash. <laughs> and that was a great comfort. So he's echoing in my mind these days. That's what I'm looking for. Okay, okay I, I'm, uh, I guess uh, uh, my thoughts are, are as to regulation and what laws we have to... Yeah, regulation, we, we talked a little about regulation over coffee today, and I'll, I'll give you my two cents because that's about what it's worth. I think the biggest flaw in the U.S. is that we have completely wedded ourselves to regulation by rule and not by principle. And the problem, particularly in areas like finance, is that you can make up all the rules you want as fast as you want, and you will never be as fast as the rate at which people can create new problems. And so I told the story of um, my first day at Fidelity. You sign your code of ethics, and in 1990, that consisted of the general counsel of the whole company coming and sitting and looking you in the eye across the desk and explaining to you that people had trusted us with their money, and this was a sacred trust. Were you comfortable with that? And did you have any qualms about signing something that said you would never do anything that would even bring into question the devotion that you had to that? This is a very good question and a very easy question to answer yes or hopefully yes uh, or no to. By the time I left, not Fidelity's doing, but due to all the regulation we had added, the Code of Ethics was 92 pages, and page 73 conflicted with page 36 because you had two totally different regulations that actually didn't fit with one another. And that look you in the eye and talk about sacred trust element, by definition, had kind of vanished into air. I think that is a serious problem, and yet it is the heart of our entire legal system, and so I'm not thinking it's going to change. I'm hoping it changes from a human level. I don't think it's going to change from a paper level. Hi. I was wondering if you could comment from your theological studies uh, in relation to investing uh, did you make any discoveries? Uh, there are all sorts of dichotomies between sin and grace, cooperation and competition, uh, social, well, even socialism and capitalism. And uh, specifically, uh, do you have a favorite parable that, from the New Testament that guides your wisdom? It kind of sounds like what you're doing with free information is what Luther did with the Bible. The priests held that in reserve. Mm-hmm. And then the Bible was published in okay, German. Sounds like that's your business. I'm going to go with that. That's <laughs> I like that one. I think, uh, you know, my mom would tell you I'm much more of a New Testament kind of gal than Old Testament, and that definitely holds true. Um, I think one of the things that, that kind of crystallized for me in divinity school, which was messy, but at the same time such a relief is, is again this idea of and. You know, you can think of two things existing simultaneously that actually don't agree with one another. And that's actually pretty common in the world. And you don't have to pick one or the other. What you have to do is ask a better question. So when it comes to finance, one of my favorite questions, no matter what is put before me, is to ask when, when won't this work, this elegant thing that you're describing to me? Because 
there always is a time, no matter how elegant a product or an idea, that it's not going to do what you hope it will do. If the person can't answer that question, they just move on. Um, I think that gets to this essence of faith and doubt, frankly, you know, holding both at the same time and um, still being able to function. Great. Thank you, everyone. This is Don't really fun. Don't clap yet. Don't clap oh, yet. Oh, wait. Okay. <laughs> um, let me just give her something, and then you can clap. Uh, before I do, though, I want to just say uh, what a joy it's been to get to know you just a little bit, even. When I first reached out uh, to Catherine, gosh, a year ago or so, she wrote back and said, this sounds fascinating. Can you call me so we can talk about it? And I have to say, that is uh, rare among the people I've invited. And so we had a lovely conversation then. We had a great conversation this afternoon. Um, and I'm going to check out your website more and uh, sign up for your, your research. Uh, anyway, enough of that. Uh, I want to just say thank you for being with us. I've got a, a plaque here oh, that says simply with thanks to Catherine Collins for bringing faith to life. Thank you so much oh, for being with you. us. Thank you. It's a joy to be here. Thank you.